Let's make today the day you get one step closer to becoming the parent you've always wanted to be and the parent your children deserve. Welcome to Powerful Parenting for Today's Kids. I am your host, Erin Taylor, and I have wanted to help parents and children literally since I was 11 years old. I created this podcast to help you make a stronger, healthier, deeper connection to your child, to understand the inevitable challenges a little better, and learn some new ways to navigate them when they occur. Thank you for spending some time with me. Now let's get this show started. Hello and welcome to episode 396. I am super excited to have my guest on the show today and his name is Nir Ayal and he is a graduate and instructor in Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He's studied and taught behavioral design with and to industry-leading experts and scientists. He writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business at nearandfar.com, and his writing has been featured in Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, Time, The Week, Inc., and Psychology Today. And I guess I should say, last but not least, he is also a dad in addition to all these amazing things. So <laughs> That's my most important accomplishment, let's be right. honest. Right. Welcome, Nir. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here, Aaron. So we are going to be talking today about your new book, Indistractable. And I read it, and I'm going to show you on camera. For those of you who are watching the video, look at all these dog-eared pages this book is fabulous. Oh, thank and, you, Aaron. That, you know, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much that means to me to see someone, you know, take what I've worked on for five years and has so improved my life. And to, to see that you've absorbed it and, and dove into it is, is really, really heartening. Thank you so much. Well, I have to tell you, and I think I've said this to my audience before, but I do not recommend any books that I either haven't read or don't like. So the only way I'm going to have a conversation about a book is if I am all on board with it. And this book is fabulous. I have to tell you, I started reading your book and my husband was reading another book kind of along the same lines about trying to be more productive and not necessarily about being less distractible, but being just kind of more productive. And I actually said to him, just stop reading that book. It's pointless. <laughs> just, just stop. When I finish this book, you can have this one because this one's much better than that one, but that one shall remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. So let's dive in a little bit and tell my listeners why they should read this book and how this came to be because five years is a really long time to to work on a book. Well, it took me five years because for the first three years, I was incredibly distracted. That's why it took me so long <laughs> to write it. I mean, <laughs> I, I wrote this book because I needed it. Um, you know, I, I, this is my second book and I only write a book when I 
have read all the other books I can find on the topic. And nine times out of 10, when I have an idea or I have a, it starts from a problem, right? It starts with something I'm struggling with. And I'll buy every book on the topic that I can find and I'll read them. And most of the time, somebody writes a great book on the topic and my problem is solved. I follow their advice and great, my, you know, I'm, my life is better for it. But every once in a while, I come across a topic that I read the books on the topic and they just do not cut it. And that's what I found with this problem of distraction um, that, you know, a few years ago, I found that I was getting distracted by all sorts of things. I remember one particular incident was when I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this beautiful day planned. We had this afternoon together and we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could play together. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question, that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said because in that moment, I started checking my phone. And my daughter got the hint that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she left the room. And by the time I looked up for my device, she was gone. And so that's when I decided that, you know, this is a problem. I need to figure out what to do about it. And so I consulted all these books. I read you know, everything I could find on the topic. And they all basically said the same thing, that technology is the problem. It's melting your brain. Uh, you know, these, these, these uh, academics who don't even have social networking accounts, don't, you know, don't have a Facebook account, were saying, okay, everybody should just stop using it. And I tried that. Like, honest to goodness, I tried it. I did a 30-day detox. I did, the, I did the whole plan. I got rid of my cell phone. I, uh, I, I got this flip phone for $12 that all it could do was send phone calls and text messages. I got a word processor with no internet connection. And I thought, great, I'm finally going to focus. I'm finally going to do what I said I'm going to do. And I would sit down at my desk and... I'd say, you know what, I should probably clean up my desk a little bit, or I should take out the trash, or, you know, there's that other book that maybe I should just do a bit more research here. Let me just figure out, you know, and I would keep procrastinating. I would keep getting distracted because I hadn't found the root cause of the problem. And I kept blaming technology as people have always blamed the latest thing, right? Well, you know, my generation, it was, uh, when I was a kid, it was Super Mario Brothers and Dungeons and Dragons. And before that, it was uh, rap music and rock music and television, the radio and all of these things, comic books. Every one of these things, people said the exact same thing as they are saying today about technology. And the more I did the research into how we, particularly as parents, you know, reflexively think, ah, something outside of me is the problem. It can't be me. It can't be that I'm doing something wrong. It can't be that something is, is, is uh, you know, a behavior that I could take responsibility for. No, 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 no. It must be something outside of me that I can't control. This is, you know, there's a long history of this. And unfortunately, I was guilty of that as well. And the more I dove into the psychology of distraction, the more I realized that not only is it much more interesting than just blaming technology, that the psychology of why we get distracted is really fascinating and that there are all sorts of distractions. I mean, technology is just the latest form that people we, that we keep blaming, but that, that also we can do a lot about it, that it's actually when we get to the root cause of the problem, this is something we can overcome. Uh, and so while we you know, blame technology for lots of things, right, election interference and you know, uh, data breaches, lots of bad things happening with technology, but with this particular problem of distraction and what some people call addiction, I actually think we can do something about it, that we can become indistractable. I think you're 100% right. And I loved the way you approached the topic in your book. And I have to say that when I, after I, as I read it and I thought back on my own 
uh, stall tactics. I know for me, when, I mean, I kind of knew this, but it just helped to bring, reading your book helped to bring a little more clarity around it. But I know for me, when I set out to create something new for my work, which I absolutely love, as I'm sure you can imagine and relate to, uh, when I set out to create something new, the the beginning of the creation process, it's kind of like getting a train rolling on the tracks. The It takes a tremendous, for me, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to get the ball rolling. Yeah. And then once I do, I'm good. But I do know that I will find a million different ways to stall for a day or a week or two weeks before I really just go, okay, enough is enough. And then I can put everything aside and dive in. So I haven't, I just finished the book literally two days ago, so I haven't created anything new yet, but I'm going to be very, I'm excited to be very mindful as I start that difficult creation process to see if I can use any of your techniques to kind of harness that, bring myself back in and stop doing like you said, oh, let me just rearrange the living room. Let me check my email. Let me, um, you know, go walk the dog, whatever silly excuses we can come up with, which are all things that need to be done, but do they need to be done right in that moment? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And actually it's, it's really important because it's, it's important to, to distinguish you know, what really is distraction that when, when the best way to understand distraction is to understand the opposite of distraction. So when you ask people, what's the opposite of distraction, they'll, oftentimes they'll say focus. And, and I disagree. I actually, I don't think the opposite of distraction is focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the etymology of the word, traction and distraction both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So your example is very apt. You say, well, I kind of have to do that stuff anyway, but that's what I call pseudo work mm-hmm. because anything that is not what you plan to do is by definition of a, a distraction. So the problem is, you know, this would happen to me every day. <laughs> Before I wrote this book, I would sit down and say, now I'm going to do that thing I've been procrastinating on. I'm going to finally do it. I'm going to do the hard work. Here I go right after I check email, <laughs> right, right, right after I do that one thing I have to do. And then 30 minutes, 45 minutes later, I still haven't done the thing I had to do, which means that I was a, a slave to the urgent at the detriment of the important. Ooh, I like that. That's a really, really big deal. Cause if we're constantly reacting all day long, we have no time for reflection. And reflection is where we do our best work, right? Whether it's uh, writing, whether it's being creative, whether it's spending time with somebody and having you know, a positive experience with a friend or a family member, uh, whatever that is, we need time for reflection. We need time for focus in order to do our best work. And, and anything that is not that, anything that is not the thing you plan to do can be a distraction, uh, even if it feels like work, even if it feels productive. Now, the good news is that just like anything can be a distraction, if you don't plan ahead for it, anything can be traction. So I'm not one of these people who says, oh, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, technology is melting your brain, stop using technology. No, no, no. There's no reason you can't enjoy being on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or Instagram, whatever you enjoy. These technologies are wonderful. They connect us with people in, in a really wonderful way if we use them correctly. The thing is, 
you know, many people want to put on a, a moral pedestal for some reason and say, okay, the way you spend your time, you know, you playing Candy Crush, you on Facebook, that's inferior to me watching football, right? That, uh, that's okay. Watching football for three hours is fine, but you on, on uh, you know, playing a video game, that's bad. There's no difference. <laughs> it's all fine. It's all wonderful as long as you do it according to your values and on your time as opposed to someone else's. So a big solution to becoming indistractable, part of the four-part process of becoming indistractable, is simply making time for traction. So I used to constantly be distracted by email, by social media, and now I turn those distractions into traction by simply making time for it in my day. I think that's brilliant. That idea of time boxing is so smart because then I can imagine someone who's listening to our chat here is thinking about, let's take email for example. So we think that email is a distraction from something that we're intending to do. It's an, you know, semi-important thing, especially if you have a business, but regardless, it's an important thing to keep on top of or else you will be swallowed up by it and then you'll miss important things. And I can imagine the first reaction that someone might have is, I've got to stay on top of that. I can't not do that. And I love your idea about time boxing because it's putting the checking of email and the addressing of the emails in its own special little spot in your calendar, whether it's daily, every other day, weekly, whatever your flow happens to be. But you're making, you're intentionally making a spot, a special spot just for that so that you can relax and say, oh, okay, I don't have to worry that I'm going to miss something important. It has its own spot, but when I'm sitting down now to do whatever it is I've intended to do now, I don't, I can resist the temptation to go over there and check email because yes. I know it's, it's waiting for me at that spot in my calendar. That's right. That's right. And so you've hit on something super important, which are what we call these internal triggers, which is actually the most important step out of the four to becoming indistractable. Because in my research, what I found is that while most people tend to blame what's called the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our environment, most distraction actually comes from within. Mm-hmm. That the real reason we get distracted, that we do things we don't intend to do, whether it's watching too much TV, working too much, drinking too much, uh, being on Facebook too much, emailing too much. The real reason, if we're really honest with ourselves, is that we are looking to escape from psychological discomfort. Mm-hmm. And until we address that fact, that procrastination and distraction are not time management problems, They are pain regulation problems. It's about our inability to cope with these uncomfortable sensations, boredom, stress, fatigue, loneliness, uncertainty, anxiety, feeling those uncomfortable sensations. And we have been conditioned to expect some kind of quick relief. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with my problems at home. Let me turn on the TV. Uh, things at work are crazy. Let me just email something. Um, you know, I, what, the news is, is driving me crazy and, and I'm stressed out. So let me, uh, you know, check Facebook. I don't know. We do these things to escape uncomfortable sensations. We're feeling lonely. You know, we turn to Instagram. We're feeling uncertain. We Google. We're feeling bored. We check stock prices, sports scores, the news, whatever it might be to relieve these uncomfortable sensations. So that means 
that time management is pain management fundamentally, that if we want to control our time, if we want to do what we say we're going to do, if we want to live with personal integrity, we have to learn these tools to deal with that discomfort. And of course, ironically, when we don't time box, when we don't make a time for these activities, it's exactly what you said. Because we're ruminating on, hey, when am I going to check email? What if I have an email? Am I going to get to my email? Is there something important waiting in email? We create more of this anxiety yeah. that makes us want to check it even more. <laughs> As opposed to just saying, nope, I know in my day, I have time in my calendar to do that activity. No worries, no stress, right? And the same goes with all of these technologies. Again, these technologies, there's nothing wrong with them. If you want to use Facebook, instead of constantly having this FOMO, the fear of missing out, I, I, I love Facebook. I check it almost every day, but I do it on my schedule. Not when I get some stupid ping or ding. I use it when, when it's convenient for me because it's in my calendar. That's just brilliant. I loved when you wrote about that concept in the book. And I think it's so true. I think before technology, we, we had plenty of distractions. We had retail therapy, yep. drinking, um, going out with our friends, sleeping. You know, we had distractions. The watching news, TV, gossip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. But now the, the, the smorgasbord of potential distractions is, it, it's almost unlimited. That's exactly right. And there's a, there's a great quote by Kierkegaard who said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Mm. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Of course, we're all anxious today because we are <laughs> dizzy with freedom. We, there are endless YouTube videos. There are endless Reddit discussions. There is endless information to, to explore. It's, and it's all right there because technology is so persuasive and pervasive. If you are looking for distraction, distraction you will find for sure. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. That, in fact, I think, you know, understanding these skills and teaching these skills to our children is more important than ever. Uh, because, you know, the world, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. I mean, this, mm -hmm. this trend is not going backwards, right? The world is going to become only a more potentially distracting place. Right. So there's no time like the present to get a handle on these distractions to become more mindful about not only our external triggers, but those uncomfortable internal triggers that we might be to start just becoming aware of when we might be trying to run away from them and right. instead bring ourselves back and sit in that discomfort, the anxiety, the worry, the boredom, whatever that thing is that we just don't want to feel it right now. Right. So that's a very important step is to realize really why. So I, I struggled with obesity. I used to be clinically obese. And I remember how often I would eat not because I was hungry. I would tell you that I was eating because I was hungry. And that wasn't really true. I was eating because of feelings, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I was eating. I was eating because I was fearful of being hungry, right? Even today, I mean, I, I got to say, like now I'm, I'm you know, 11% body fat. I, I changed my, my ways. I, a part of this is because, because I became indistractable. I thank you. <laughs> uh, but, but part of it is now becoming aware of those sensations, but also having a toolkit that doesn't require willpower, that doesn't require self-control. Uh, I hate the word, words self-discipline. I mean, it still sell, sends chills down my spine because that's what my parents would tell me. Just have some self-discipline. Why can't you stop eating? Why can't you stop doing that? And the fact is that I was leaving, I was making these decisions in my life. I was doing these actions because of a lack of impulse control. I mean, that's what distraction is really about. 
you say you want to do one thing, but you do something else. And, and we all do this, right? We say we want to work out. We don't. We say we want to be fully present with our kids, but we're, you know, our minds are elsewhere. We say we're going to work on that big project at work, but we procrastinate. We watch YouTube or do something else for that time. We know we want to do one thing, but we do something else. And that is because of this problem with impulsiveness. And the fact of the matter is, in the moment, willpower, self-control, self-discipline fails. You know, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, it's too late. You're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit, you're going to smoke it. If the cell phone is on your nightstand eight inches from you and you're just as close to your cell phone as you are to your husband or wife or lover, well, you're going to pick up the phone first thing in the morning because it's right there. (laughs) And so the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought, is planning ahead, is setting up a system That means you don't need willpower anymore. You don't need self-control and self-discipline because you have a system in place that helps you become indistractable. And that's that's really what these four parts uh, to becoming indistractable are all about. I just love it. And I'm thinking about my audience, which is obviously parents, and all of these concepts are, I mean, they're useful whether a person works or not. They're useful whether a person is a parent or not, or whether they're an adult or a child. They're all your concepts can benefit anyone who reads your book. But specifically for my audience, I'm thinking about parents and how getting a handle on these internal and external triggers and finding ways to gain traction instead of distraction is so useful because a parent's time, as you know, is spread even more thin than anyone else's time because not only do you have whatever you've got going on and you, you've created in your own life, but now you're responsible for these little people and their, their schedules and shepherding them through life and guiding them and connecting with them. And so you're, when you become a parent and then add other, you know, um, another child, another child, whatever, no matter how many you have, one or more, yeah. you, your time just gets exponentially more complicated. That's true. And, and let me say something you're not supposed to say. Children are really distracting. Very distracting. <laughs> we, 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 we blame our technology for distracting us and this and that, but kids are really distracting, right? Like how many times do we sit down and we say, okay, I'm going to do that thing. And mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, you know, what do we do about that? People can be distractions too. If you work in an open floor plan office, you know, we substitute your kids for your colleagues, your coworkers. Mm -hmm. Turns out in my research, it is a huge source of distraction when someone comes by your desk and says, hey, can I tell you about this bit of office gossip? Or can I talk to you for a quick sec? It's never a quick sec. It can be incredibly distracting. And so I tell people how to deal with that as well. There are ways that we can do what I call hacking back all of these external triggers, not just you know our phones and our computers, but our the open floor plan office, how to hack back meetings, how to hack back email, how to hack back working from home when you work around kids. There are ways, there are strategies uh, that, that we can use to make sure that we can limit those distractions uh, to make sure that we do more of what we want to do, more traction and less distraction. It's fabulous. I absolutely love it. So I wanted to talk for a few minutes about kids and screen time. Yeah. Because this is a universal uh, stress and fear for parents, no matter 
what age their child is, there's so much fear and resistance and anxiety around it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about screen time and children and distraction and yeah. being indistractable. Let's, uh, let's try and put some of those fears to rest for parents. Sure. What, what's the best advice you have for parents? Yeah. yeah. So there's a whole section in the book that's called how to raise indistractable kids. Uh, again, something I wanted an answer for in my life. So let me, let me give you just uh, some high level, like low hanging fruit. The, 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 the easiest thing you can do is to make sure you are only giving your kid age appropriate content. And this goes for any form of media, not just technology, not with, just with screen time. I wouldn't let my kid watch just anything on TV. There's lots of stuff she's not ready for. Even books, right? Books are supposed to be good for kids. Isn't reading good? Well, yeah, but only if the content is age appropriate. I'm not going to let my kid walk into the library and just read any book. There's lots of stuff she's not ready for. So somehow we got this notion that the iPad is an iNanny. And I don't know where that came from, right? We as parents, any form of media need to make sure it is age appropriate. But the good news is that of all the studies that have been done to date, not one has shown that there is any deleterious effects to two hours or less of age-appropriate screen time, okay? So we can, we can relax a little bit <laughs> that where we see negative correlation with negative well-being when it comes to psychological well-being, we start to see some small negative effects when it comes to five, six hours a day really a lot of use, right? And what we don't know, because correlation does not equal causation, we don't know if kids who are struggling psychologically gravitate to these things as a distraction to take their mind off of what's going on in their life, or whether kids, you know, otherwise are healthy and then, you know, use products so excessively uh, sorry, and, and then our draw uh, become, you know, cause these problems because they use the, the technology. And from all the research I've seen, I'm much more inclined to believe the former. That what's happening is that our children are deficient in what I call psychological nutrients. That just for our, just as for our bodies, for our physiological health, we need the three macronutrients of protein, carbohydrates, and fat, right? Those are the three macronutrients. Well, psychologists have been telling for the past 50 years now, the most widely accepted theory of human motivation and psychological flourishing, this is called self-determination theory. This is not some fringe theory. Every psychologist on earth has heard about it. It's the most widely accepted theory of human motivation, says that we need three things for psychological flourishing. We need competency, autonomy, and relatedness, all of us, including our kids. But unfortunately, I think most kids' lives are structured in such a way that they are deficient in these three things. So when you take competency, one thing that has happened in conjunction with the rise of, of increased cell phone use around 2008, we started seeing uh, no child left behind. We started seeing teachers teach towards standardized tests to the point where in some districts, starting in kindergarten, kids are forced to take standardized tests two, three, four times a year. And teachers are teaching towards the test because their pay depends on it. So what we have is, is, is a subset of kids who are constantly told they are not competent. And what do they do if they don't get that feeling of competency offline? This is called the needs displacement hypothesis. They look for it online. So Minecraft or Fortnite or whatever gives them an amazing sense of competence. It makes them feel like they know what they're doing. That feels good. 
And so now let's take autonomy. Autonomy is this sense of freedom that we all need. We all hate being told what to do. But it turns out that this is the most regulated and scheduled generation in history. Peter Gray found that the average American child today has 10 times as many restrictions placed on them as the average adult, twice as many rules as an incarcerated felon. There are only two places in society where we can tell people where to go, what to think, who to be friends with, what to eat, how to dress, and that's school and prison. And so it's no surprise that our kids are hungry for freedom, right? They want to express agency because they're so hyper-scheduled. It used to be, you know, in my generation, we would come home around 2.30, 3 o'clock, and then we just played for the rest of the day. That doesn't happen anymore. Kids come home today with so much homework, so much after-school activities between soccer and swimming and test prep and Kumon and Mandarin, so many activities that they just don't control their time anymore. And that is psychologically debilitating. Also because it leads to this third factor of of relatedness, that we know that the third component of self-determination theory is relatedness, that all of us need to feel understood by others and to, to understand others as well. And unfortunately, what has also declined since these metrics were, were, were taken about 50 years ago, we know that the number of hours that kids spend in free play is at an all-time low. Free play is when kids can just have fun on their own without the, the watchful gaze of parents and coaches and teachers, just playing. And it turns out that that is incredibly important. But kids don't have time for that anymore. There's no time for that in their day, either because their parents have been scared by the media telling them that, you know, stranger danger and your kid's going to get abducted, even though this is the safest time in American history to be a kid in America. Parents don't let their kids out to play. So there's no time and there's no time for them to do this anymore. So we have a very fragile generation of kids who hasn't heard from their friend what, what is absolutely critical, you know, play is where we learn our place in the world. It's one thing if your parent says, don't do this or don't do that. But if your friend says, hey, if you act like a jerk, I'm not going to be friends with you. That's incredibly important. That's where we learn our place in the world. But when kids don't get that offline, guess what? They're desperate for it. So where do they go? They go on Snapchat and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. That's where they get this feeling of relatedness. They're hanging out with their friends online because they don't get that interaction offline. And so that's the root co cause of the problem. We talked about those internal triggers earlier, that the internal triggers that many children have today, when we see the kids who are spending five, six, seven hours a day online, this is what they are desperate for. They are looking for that connection. They are looking for these psychological nutrients that they are missing. And if we as parents keep blaming the symptom instead of the disease, we're never going to solve the problem. So, 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 it's so true what you're saying. So true. So what do you think is one beginning step that a parent who's listening to this can take? Because the, the competency, autonomy, and relatedness is definitely, those are three critical elements that a kid has to feel, has to begin to learn how to, not learn how to feel, but begin to experience so that they can be psychologically healthy. Mm -hmm. And so when a parent hears this and they start to say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to start building this in my child. What do you think is like a, a beginning easy step that they can take to help them 
Yeah. Tackle so, these things. Absolutely. So the best thing you can do is to become indistractable yourself because children are hypocrisy detection devices. Ooh. They can right? spot it a mile away. As they should. It's yes. annoying, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's good for us and it's good it for them. It us on our toes. Right. And you know what? You know, sometimes I meet parents who are really scared of being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I, I get that. We don't want, you know, if we're struggling with money, we don't want to freak our kids out that we're going to be thrown out of our house. We, there's a lot of things that, that we don't want to share every stressor in our life with our kids. If we're having a disagreement with our spouse, we don't need to involve kids in everything. But I think in this case, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to tell your kids, you know what? Daddy's struggling with this too. Because you see these devices, they're really good. They're really fun. And they're made to be engaging. That's by design. So I struggle with this as well. And I need you to help me. Let's help each other here. That's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable. But as part of that process of becoming indistractable, you have to show your kids what it means to be indistractable, that it's important to you to do what you say you're going to do, to live with personal integrity so that when you're at the dinner table, the television is off, the phones are put away. You're there to be fully present with the people you love, that you schedule time to be with them and that you follow through and you do what you say you're going to do. And then when it comes to our kids, we really do use the same four tactics. So there's four, t- four strategies to becoming indistractable. Step one is to master these internal triggers, to understand what's driving us towards distraction and learn tactics to cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner. And we can learn those ourselves. I articulate them in the book and we can teach those to our kids by understanding what's really going on. Now, the next step is to make time for traction. And just as we plan our own day, right, we can't call something a distraction unless we know what it's distracting us from. So just as we plan our own day, we can help our kids plan their day. So most of our kids' day is already planned, right? They go to school. But when they come home, I think it's important, just as we make time for them to, you know, do their homework or do whatever else they need to do, we need to, one, make time in their day for free play that, Mm -hmm. you know, prioritize this over the test prep over the ballet lessons, over the baseball practice, do they have time in their day to play with other kids as kids should, right? And you may, this may require, you know, so many parents are either so freaked out about letting their kids go outside. I don't know if you saw this story uh, a few months ago. There was a homeschooled family in in a suburb of Washington, D.C. that let their kids walk a mile and a half to a playground Okay, it was like an eight-year-old and I think a five-year-old. They let their kids walk a mile and a half to a playground. They got reported to HRS and now they, they, went, they had to go to jail. <laughs> they had to go to the police station because it was so crazy. A child at a playground, <laughs> unsupervised. So this is part of the free-range kids movement. I think we need to be okay with letting kids do what we as kids did <laughs> that suddenly has become uh, untenable to folks, that we become so scared as parents to let our kids outside. We need to let them have time for free play. So schedule that time in their day as well as scheduling time for the things that they want to do. So if your kid wants to play an hour, an hour and a half, even two hours of a video game, that's okay. There's nothing, there's no data that shows that, that age-appropriate screen time, as long as it's you know, around two hours or less, has any negative effects. So what I did with my daughter, I sat down with her, and this was when she was just five years old. I love this, by the way. <laughs> this is maybe my favorite part in the whole book, but oh, anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> I asked her, I said, look, how much time do you want with your iPad? 
Okay, she was watching uh, Netflix videos and she had a few apps that she liked. And of course, we made sure that they were age appropriate. But I asked her, I said, look, the price of this screen time is, is not that it's melting your brain. I don't want, you know, we don't want our kids to be technophobic. Look, the, the jobs of the future need them to be tech literate. <laughs> we don't want to scare them about this technology being evil. Mm-hmm. So I told her, look, the, the technology is not bad for you. There's nothing wrong with it. But the cost of the technology, the cost of the screen time is time that you wouldn't spend with your friends. It's time you wouldn't spend with mommy and daddy. It's time you wouldn't spend reading a book or doing something else. So let me ask you, how much time do you want to spend with your iPad per day? And, and she'd never heard this before. And so she thought she was kind of, you know, getting a deal here. So she asks me, so she tells me, she says, how about two episodes? Two episodes, meaning two Netflix episodes, which is about 45 minutes. I don't have any problem with that. There's no, there's no data that shows that, to, you know, that that amount of time on, on age-appropriate screen time has any negative effects. So I said, okay, but here's the thing. How will you make sure that you enforce that rule that you made for yourself? So what, what did I do here? I gave her the autonomy. I gave her the control. I didn't squash her sense of agency. I empowered her to make her own decision because I'm not raising a child. I'm raising a future adult. And so I want her to have this skill for even when she's not, you know, in, in, in view, when she goes over to her kid's house, when she goes to college, I want her to develop this skill to self-regulate now. <laughs> and so I asked her, how would you make sure that you enforce your own rule? And she said, well, how about this? We used to have a microwave that was below the countertop. And she said, what if I go to the microwave and I pop in how much time I want to spend on the iPad? And then when the alarm goes off, that'll tell me to stop. I said, great. (laughs) Well, this was like six years ago, and she still enforces this 45-minute rule. But today, she does it with the tools that are built into the device. So now there's Apple Screen Time. Uh, Sometimes she'll call out, we have, you know, the Amazon Echo. So she'll say, Alexa, set the timer for 45 minutes or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And then now the beauty of this is I'm not the bad guy. Mm -hmm. It's not me that says, get off your device. It's a rule she set for herself, and the technology is telling her it's time to stop. And so that's, that's what's called hacking back, right? That's making sure that we can use these technologies in a way that help us regulate our time with them. Uh, one, of, one of the best tests to make sure if a child is ready for a device is to see, do they know how to turn it off, right? When they're doing their homework, can they use do not disturb? When they come to the dinner table, do they leave the devices elsewhere? And if they don't do that, guess what? They're not ready for it. It's just like a swimming pool. I, you know, swimming pools kill thousands of children, but that doesn't mean we should stop letting kids have fun in the pool. It means we need to teach them how to swim. And so one of the best tests to see if your child knows how to swim when it comes to these devices is to know that they have the ability and the, the, the knowledge for how to turn them off, how to make sure that, that they can hack them back. Uh, another quick hit, by the way, you know, I think the more I looked at the data, what I found the, the real problem that we're seeing with, with the decline in, in, uh, in, in uh, some of these psychological factors, you know, we have seen an increase in teen suicide. I think what's going on is not the technology itself, but what the technology is doing to sleep. I think that's probably the most likely culprit here. There's something going on with the interaction of kids using devices and screens past bedtime. And I think that there is a lot of conclusive evidence uh, is not good for kids, that the effect size of missing a good night's sleep is actually much higher than the effect size of, of excess screen time. So a simple thing you can do, no, no screens in kids' rooms past bedtime. 
right? So I, I, and I'm not just talking about the new technologies like iPhones and iPads and, you know, television. It's hard for me to understand why a kid needs a television or even a computer in their room. That can be in a more public space. It doesn't need to be something that has even the possibility of interrupting their sleep. But the Amazon Echo, for example, that reads your kids a, a bedtime story or sets the alarm clock, I don't see that as a problem because that's not a trigger that can interrupt their sleep. And then finally, the last thing we can do, there's a lot more here in terms of details, but I want to just give you a, a few quick hits, is preventing distraction with packs. So this is the fourth step of what we can do as well as what we can help our kids learn is using technology to help us prevent getting distracted by technology. So one thing I, I, I use almost every day, my daughter loves it too, is this app called Forest. And the way Forest works, you just set a little, you, you, you open the app and it has a little dial and you put in how much time you want to do focused work for, whether it's you know, time to read a book, do your homework, be with friends, whatever it is, time you don't want to use your screen. You push go and a little virtual tree is planted. And if you pick up your phone and do anything with it, the little virtual tree dies. And so it's just enough of a reminder, enough of a pact, enough of a pre-commitment you've made with yourself uh, to say, nope, that's not what I want to be doing right now. And there's all kinds of other pre-commitments. There's also what's called an identity pact where we start calling ourselves a certain moniker. We can call ourselves indistractable. We can do these things to help us be more likely to do what we say we're going to do. And we can teach our kids the same exact techniques. I love it. There is so much in your book that is useful for parents and everyone else, children, everyone. So I highly recommend that everyone pick up a copy of your book. It's so, so good. Thank and I you. only recommend <laughs> things I love. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I appreciate it. Thank you for so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for spending this time with us today. And we will put some links in the show notes, right? Where people can find you and find your book and all that kind of good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. My website is nearandfar.com. And uh, there's also, if you go to Indistractable, there's all kinds of tools there at indistractable.com. Yes. There's an 80 page workbook that can help you on your way. Uh, all kinds of stuff there as well that, that uh, I think you'll find helpful. So that's at indistractable.com. Fabulous. Well, thank you, Nir, so much for spending today with us and giving parents some amazing resources to really level up and live the kind of life that they want and allow space for the kind of deep connections that they and their children deserve with each other. So thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. That wraps up this episode of Powerful Parenting for Today's Kids. If you know anyone who could benefit from this episode or this podcast in general, please share it with them. Also, I always love hearing feedback from my listeners. I welcome you to send me an email to Aaron at Aaron-Taylor.com if you have any comments or questions that come up for you in an episode. Our children are our future. Parenting them is the most sacred task we will ever be asked to do. It truly does take a village to raise a child. Let's help each other to raise our children to be who it is they are meant to be. If at any point you feel like you need a little extra help and support, reach out to me. I am here to help you.